Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We're listening to Work Song by Charles Mingus. Recorded at Cafe Bohemia in New York City on December 23, 1955. Today's show is At Your Service, organizing in the service economy. It's a repackaging of a program from August 2015 about service sector workers and the future of unions, with a focus on the question, can there be a labor movement with any strength in the service sector? Perhaps that movement needs to find new forms of organization to stay relevant. In the coming weeks, we'll feature two interviews about automation and labor in an economy where 80% of work is now in this so-called service sector. This show, from over five years ago, is prelude but might as well have been produced yesterday. The federal minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour. It's the same here in Indiana. States can set their own minimum wage. For example, the state of Washington guarantees $13.50, while Georgia and Wyoming guarantee only $5.50 an hour. And you can bet that many folks are actually happy about it. But they're not workers. Mid-20th century union activism transformed manufacturing jobs from backbreaking low-wage work into careers that allowed workers to buy homes and send their kids to college. Some union activists insist that there's no reason why service sector workers cannot follow that same path. Joining us for this program is Fran Quigley, author of If We Can Win Here, The New Front Lines of the Labor Movement and a clinical professor of law in the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. He's the director of the Health and Human Rights Clinic, where students advocate for the rights of the poor with a special focus on representing low-wage workers. Throughout the program, we'll also hear from Shalanda Smith, a home care worker and a member of the Service Employees International Union, SEIU Healthcare. We'll begin with a clip from Martin Luther King Jr.'s April 3, 1968 speech to the striking Memphis sanitation workers, known as I've Been to the Mountaintop, a speech that was delivered one day before his murder. You are demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor. So often we overlook the worth and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight, that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. 
somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. Again, that was Martin Luther King Jr. speaking at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee, in support of the Memphis sanitation strike. He was assassinated the next day. And now, at your service, on Interchange, on WFHB. Fran Quigley, what do you find most relevant in that speech delivered nearly 50 years ago? Unfortunately, some of the, 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 the core relevance is that the, the same fight that was being waged in Memphis 50 years ago is, uh, is still needs to be waged by the workers of, of Bloomington and Indianapolis and Bedford and Martinsville and Terre Haute, etc. Um, and that is that uh, we have far too many people in our communities who are working very, very hard at uh, at jobs that we need in our communities, and um, they are not being shown the respect that Dr. King spoke about. They're not being uh, treated with the dignity that he spoke about, and, and they are being paid the starvation wages that he decried in his speech. So uh, that speech could be delivered in Monroe County or Marion County today and and be enormously relevant. Well, it, it calls up, obviously, uh, the, the historical signif- significance there, and, and to imagine it, that time, as you say, could sort of be uh, just sort of shifted and we'd find ourselves in the same place, uh, that unions have served a particular uh, purpose through through the sort of founding of the of the industrial nature of the country. Um, is it possible for you get, to give us a sort of a brief background of, of that history? When I discuss it in the context of what's going on with service sector workers today, I, I usually discuss it in the context of what we faced in Indiana a um, hundred years ago. And and a hundred years ago, um, our economy in in Indiana and in many other states was in the process of shifting from an agricultural economy uh, to a manufacturing economy, and. Uh, part of that shift um, was uh, was to very much to the detriment of of working people uh, in our communities and in our state in our in the in the places where we live now, and that the um, the jobs in the factories were the jobs that the uh, that people young people went and took when they couldn't inherit the farm when they couldn't get land, and so these were jobs that were they were dirty, they were dangerous, they were tenuous in terms of their hours and being laid off uh, somewhat randomly, and they didn't pay very well. And these are the very same manufacturing jobs that now, 100 years later, we are mourning the loss of because the union movement turned those jobs into good jobs. They turned the, the union movement turned those manufacturing jobs from from uh, poor pay and poor job security and and you know not at all uh, safe jobs uh, into jobs that that people built families on that built communities and um, those jobs have uh, unfortunately we've lost a lot of those in Indiana in the last 20 30 years 
and they've been replaced in, in significant part by service sector jobs. And now, 100 years later, the service sector jobs fit some of the same description of the manufacturing jobs before the union movement, and that they are um, tenuous jobs. They are low-paid jobs. They are jobs that, as Dr. King mentioned, are, are not being, uh, where the people holding the jobs are not treated with dignity. Somebody you know, takes as a slur, well, that's the person who's the uh, flipping the burgers or washing the dishes or, or the, the rent-a-cup. Um, well, it turns out those are jobs that, that we have in our communities, we need in our communities, and the, and the people holding those jobs are trying to support uh, families uh, on those meager wages. And so those workers, and that's what this book is about, is the workers are trying to follow in the path of the uh, unionized um, workers 100 years ago in the manufacturing industries and trying to turn the jobs we have in our economy as we shift from a manufacturing to a service economy in, in many respects and trying to turn those jobs into good jobs. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Tonight's show is an edited repeat from 2015 about the labor movement in the service sector. Fran Quigley is our guest. He's a clinical professor of law at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law and author of If We Can Win Here, The New Front Lines of the Labor Movement. Shalanda Smith, home care worker and member of SEIU Healthcare, also joins us throughout. A question there, um, uh, Fran, about the the shift in the way, uh, uh, sort of a shift in the in the job itself, right? So you talked about the the manufacturing um, uh, labor and then sh- shifting into service industry labor. Is there a difference between the kind of labor and how it gets unionized? Uh, the the kinds of products that are created out of that particular kind of work. Does it matter that uh, that you know you could turn the one into a good job for the sense that it's creating a product does it does it matter in in, in the service sector that you know the product is uh, i guess human services that are different than than making products does that make sense you know i, I it does make sense i see what you're saying um i'm not sure that the the output of the workers labor is is um is determinative. I'm not sure that it, it really um, matters. As, as we know, somebody like me and uh, my background is, is being a lawyer or um, or a writer. Um, you know, I'm I'm paid you know very well for my my lawyer my lawyering and for my teaching or for um, for my writing. Um, you know, physicians are service uh, service workers. I mean, these are folks folks providing a service that's needed in the community. We can we can come up with many other examples. So th- there's no though no automatic um, Connection between doing service work and and being low paid. What what is a challenge for the folks who are trying to organize unions in the service sector, um, which is sometimes a more difficult challenge than trying to do so in a manufacturing setting, is that the workers are oftentimes you know very temporary. They're doing maybe two different part-time jobs, or sometimes we even have clients in our clinic doing three different part-time jobs, and, and they're not at the workplace very long. Uh, they don't build up a lot of solidarity with their co-workers because folks being paid that little are, are, are pretty transient on the job. They're usually very willing and understandably so ready to go to the next opportunity that pays 50 cents more an hour. So they're not coming into the same factory shop, for instance, and spending eight to 10 hours together and, and thereby having the chance to, to build the solidarity that helps with a union. Uh, a, a extreme example of that is 
I know that you've spoken with a home care worker here in, in Indiana, and home care workers organizing in a union is an incredible challenge because they do not go to the same workplace together. Uh, they go to their, their patients, their clients' homes, and so they are not seeing each other naturally in the course of a workday. And it's, as you can imagine, very hard to build solidarity and build a, a union out of um, those type of, of working conditions. So I think it's more about the conditions of the work and and in my observation, than, than the actual product of what they do. And one of the things that you mentioned there was the, the sort of um, the multiple jobs one might have to take, the fact that you're transient in those jobs, the fact that you might take a job that, that pays just a bit more to get a little more money. And one of the things that, that struck me as, as I was working through your book and, and thinking about it, you know, we moved from uh, just-in-time manufacturing to just-in-time laboring. Um, and sort of, I think that's you know part of what what you're talking about here is the difficulty to have anybody uh, be in a stable, steady place in a community of work, a community of life, a community of home. We're sort of fractured in that space now, uh, and it's sort of exacerbated by this type of work. Right, and and there's certainly a lot of um, uh, folks who've studied the service uh, sector industry, in particular, something like the fast food industry, and say these are these are not accidental. Um, arrangements that if you have uh, workers who are uh, like to get paid, like to do 40 hours a week, and you give them 28 hours a week of of somewhat sporadic uh, scheduling, then those folks are going to be available to you on a short leash. Um, you can call them up 40 minutes before a shift saying someone else called in sick, can you come in? And, and people are, um, whenever they can, willing to do it. And it, it, it like you say, that, that allows just-in-time labor to be uh, provided, which um, you know maybe provides some efficiencies for the uh, for the management, but certainly is is no way to raise a family or build a community. It's time for a break. Ever think advice for workers is condescending? Here's "Whistle While You Work," performed by Louis Armstrong from the 1968 album Disney Songs: The Satchmo Way. Whistle while you work. <laughs> Put on that pin and start riding to whistle loud and loud. Stay with us for more at your service when Interchange returns on WFHB. Just do your best and take a rest and sing yourself a song. When there's too much to do, don't let it bother you. Forget your troubles, try to be just like the cheerful chickadee and whistle while you wake. Come on, get smart and tune up and start to whistle while you Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. If you're just joining us, we're talking about unionizing the service sector tonight. My guest via telephone is Fran Quigley, author of If We Can Win Here, The New Front Lines of the Labor Movement. In this segment, we open with home care worker and SEIU member Shalonda Smith highlighting the dignity of work. 
I'm going to play a little clip from uh, an interview I did with Shalanda Smith. Uh, Shalanda is a, a home care worker in Indianapolis. I'm going to play a, a clip where she tells us a little bit about what she does. I'm a home care worker, and what I do is I go into the homes of the elder, and I go in homes of people who are incapacitated in some manner. They are either physically or mentally uh, not quite able to sustain their own living, and I go in and assist them and help them be to be able to stay in their homes and live in their homes. And it's basically a lot of them are senior citizens. And I am a senior citizen, so I really know the importance, and I feel the importance of this particular type of work. What I do is I cook, I clean, I assist them in any manner that they need. I go to the shops, I shop for them, I will do their errands, and a lot of times if they're able, I take them with me and I uh, can carry them around and help them. I do things that would make a person feel that he is still capable and functionable in our society without being tucked away inside of an institution. And then you never know. I mean, you don't have to become a senior citizen to get this. This could be through a medical problem that comes about, and uh, you, you have to have someone come in and help you. And you want to stay in your home. You don't want to leave your home. You have worked, and this is one of the major things you have done all your life. You worked and scuffled to get your home and have a home. You don't want to leave it after you get to that age. You want to be able to stay there and enjoy it. So... I'm that person who can come in and help you stay there and live there and enjoy it as for as long as possible. That was Shalanda Smith, a home care worker in Indianapolis, uh, and that uh, goes right to the heart of what Dr. King was saying uh, when he says that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for building the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. Frank Quigley, uh, do you uh, you get a sense for that in, in, in the people you talk to in your book, that there's this, this sense that they, they do understand uh, or that they, they get the feeling that they are engaged in important work, but part of the difficulty in doing that work is is not getting paid a wage that uh, that sort of assists in that sense of value, that gives you the sense that your work is valuable. Uh, absolutely, Doug, and, and listening to, to Ms. Smith just reminded me of, of why I started to write this book to begin with, because there are so many uh, passionate, eloquent, uh, just simply admirable people that are in our community that many of us don't get a chance to talk to who are doing this kind of work and are well aware of how uh, the injustice uh, works of, of what they get paid and how they get treated. And and uh, can you imagine a job that is more important than being a home care worker? As, as Ms. Smith so perfectly explained it, she is, she is empowering some of the most vulnerable people in our communities, people who have uh, given their lives literally to, to build our communities and build their families, and she's empowering them to have some independence and stay in their home and making sure that they're safe. Uh, and, and cared for. I just can't imagine a more important job. But our society now, our economy now, um, you know, pays her dirt wages. Uh, home care workers are, are horribly paid. They're, they're sometimes paid no more than 8 or $9 an hour. They, they have to bounce around to different uh, home workplaces and, and struggle to, to get uh, full-time or close to full-time hours. Uh, I've talked to many home care workers for the book who ironically provide care 
all day, every day, yet do not have health care themselves because they can't afford it and go without uh, health care themselves because they can't afford it because they don't have insurance and they can't pay the out-of-pocket costs. Um, but as, as Dr. King mentioned, as you mentioned, as Ms. Smith mentioned, the, it comes down to sometimes the way that we show respect for, for people in their work is through their paycheck, and clearly that's how Ms. Smith and others need to pay for their housing and the food for their families. But also a, a lot of people I talked to for the book, I was really su- surprised by how important you know, a less tangible form of dignity, just respect at the workplace where they can be uh, treated with respect by management because they're part of a union and they do have um, some actual say in how the, their work is done and how the workplace is, is managed. And, and that kind of respect for all of us, uh, some of us maybe take it for granted in our workplaces, but but uh, for folks who are in food service or, or uh, custodians or security officers or home care workers, uh, that's not a given. And the union movement has uh, helped them not just tangibly get uh, a more path towards closer to a just wage, but also to respect in the workplace. And that's, that's clearly important to all of us. Minimum wages have no business being $7. There is no way in the world that you could survive off of this. I make just a little bit of minimum wages, but I still have to work anywhere from 20 to 30 hours overtime or more in order that I can get enough money to survive off of. And that's because the wages are so low. I get paid like every two weeks. That's the 80-hour pay. Instead, I'm working 125 to 135 or 40 hours every two weeks because it's the overtime that I have that makes me able to live or get the decent amount of money to live off of. That, those hours, that's, that's, that's a job for somebody else. That means that if I didn't have to work some type of hours, somebody else could be working those hours, and they could be making a decent living. Shalanda Smith, home care worker in Indianapolis, makes a, a, an important point there, uh, a couple of points, actually, that uh, she talks about her overtime. Uh, of, Fran, do you know that in, in this particular industry, overtime just means working more than a certain number of hours, or is there uh, a like time-and-a-half kind of situation in, in, the, in this sector? Uh, well, it, it should be. Uh, <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, for many workers, that, that they are they do not have uh, their overtime rights under federal law respected. But it should be that that a person working more than forty hours in a, uh, a week period uh, should be getting time and a half for the hours above forty hours. Uh, ironically, that's a lot of what our um, legal clinic here at the IU McKinney Law School up in Indianapolis uh, does. We represent low-wage workers when they're victimized by um, a variety of problems, including wage theft. And sometimes that wage theft means that they have worked far more than their um, the 40 hours a week, but they're not being paid overtime. And so uh, we've had several cases uh, like that, and, and that's unfortunately pretty common. But hopefully for Ms. Smith and for other home care workers, the default mode should be, and federal law requires that, and state law requires that, that they should be getting paid time and a half. It's, there's a few exceptions to that, um, but the exceptions should be should be minimal, and uh, the, these workers should be getting paid time and a half. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Tonight's show is an edited repeat from 2015 about the labor movement in the service sector. Fran Quigley is our guest. He's a clinical professor of law at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law and author of If We Can Win Here, The New Front Lines of the Labor Movement. 
Shalanda Smith, home care worker and member of SEIU Healthcare, also joins us throughout. We'll go ahead and, and, and play another segment. This is about um, a conversation we had where she talks about the value of work and, and how not having jobs and not getting paid properly leads to a lot, a lot of other consequences that people don't have uh, ways to, to be involved in communities, don't have ways to feel good about themselves and, and end up doing other things. Let's be honest. Wages is it. If you, got, if you pay a person the kind of wages they... There's a big, you're going to get the top-notch people to come in and work in these capacities because they know they're getting the type of wages where they can come in, give good services, and get out. They've not, it's not a demand that they be in there all day long. You have people, when they come to work and they've been at work for 15 or 12 hours, uh, they work 12-hour days a shift, and, they're, it, and they got over amount of people to, that they got to try to service, Somebody is going to not get the kind of proper services that they need. So, but if you they're making the money, they're going to draw good people. It's like anything. You get, you're going to get the top workers because everybody's going to want to be in that field. Mm-hmm. They're going to want a service. So you're getting people who it, it's a win-win situation. You got people who are going to win because they are working, because they want to do this job. The people who are getting these services, they're going to get the best services. So they're going to be happy because they got people who are in there working with them that are making them feel, instead of them just coming in and looking at it as a job and just having to put that time in and go to the next person so they can put the time in. So it's basically, I don't care how anyone can look at it, if a person is paid proper pay, they're going to give you good services. You know, they're not just going to come in. I mean, there is always that few that mess up anything in any type of business. Because let's face it, I don't care. We got people who make millions of dollars in sports and they mess up. So you know, they, they're not working. I mean, they are working, but they're not doing it in the capacity that we're working. So, but we do know that if People would pay people who service in the service institute money, the smiles that they would get back, the services that they would receive. It, it, it would just really, and, and the attitudes of people, and, and, and people who are doing so much wrong, they would have a job. They would look for jobs instead of doing wrong. They would be out here working. They know they could go to work and make some, a decent wage and, and take care of their families. There's so many things that come back to people not having proper jobs and proper wages. That's why our society is really going to the dogs, let's just be honest. It's because people feel like they're valued, and they're not valued in the... They're devalued, and they're not valued in the capacity that they need to be. Uh, Shalonda Smith is in that service sector economy, and she's talking there about the fact that uh, work has value, and if you don't get paid well, you may not be feeling uh, like you are valued, and you may also not have any time to yourself. You may not be able to spend time with your family. You may not be able to get a good night's sleep. You may not be a very um, happy, functioning person, and, and a lot of that's uh, something we don't talk about very often, I don't think, Frank Quigley, is just how it, me- you know, how it is to be a person 
devalued in that way. Yeah, and I, I, I really appreciate that you conducted the interview with Ms. Smith. And to be honest with you, I'm tempted to hang up and listen to Ms. Smith talk because uh, she she articulates the situation so so beautifully. And and again, that's I did not have the opportunity. I've, I've met her, but I did, met her after I wrote the book, and so. Uh, she is not one of the voices in the book, but there's a lot of voices of workers uh, who are, I hope are lifted up in this book and so that we get a chance to, to hear from them in, in the way that she's getting a chance to, to be heard in this, in this program. But uh, it, it's something that, again, I, I think what's valuable about her participating in this program and hopefully this book and hopefully even just our conversation we're having is that these are people who are members of our community. They are people of value, uh, and I think all of us would enjoy getting to know them. But to be honest, most of us don't. Most of us don't know the day-to-day struggles of the people who clean up uh, the buildings that we may work in. Uh, We don't know the struggles of the person who is uh, cooking the meal in the restaurant we may go to or cleaning up afterwards or or working as a security guard uh, off hours. And in all these jobs that uh, have meaning, and um, as, as Dr. King said in the clip you played at the beginning, you know, have dignity and, and are deserving of respect. But also, at a real pragmatic level, those are the jobs we have. Uh, we do not have uh, a bunch of manufacturing work that is going to pay unionized wages of $30 an hour coming into Monroe County or Marion County or, or Morgan County anytime. Uh, soon. Uh, what we do have are a lot of service sector jobs. We have a lot of folks who are are needed to do these work, these, this type of work. And so these are the jobs we have. Let's make them jobs that allow people to do, as Ms. Smith said, uh, you know, raise their families and, and have a good productive life and so that their families are, are more stable and our neighborhoods are more stable and our communities are happier, safer places to live. It's time for another break. This is Go Get Organized by the Redskins off of neither Washington nor Moscow. More with Frank Quigley and organizing service work when Interchange returns on WFHB. I got a job to shift to me Straight out of school Straight into heat I got a job
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is At Your Service with Fran Quigley, clinical professor of law in the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis and director of the Health and Human Rights Clinic there. In this segment, Quigley talks about the problem of how we define and locate work, workers, and employers in our outsourced economy. Get One of the things that you talk about there about stability and community is, uh, and, and you mentioned earlier as well, the fact that uh, it's hard to, to feel that sense of community within the workplace and, and uh, as well as within your own community if you don't get home from work and you can't have any time with your family or friends as well, don't have time to go out and be with anybody. But one thing that was um, interesting too is is the idea that um, – that there's no there's no sort of central idea of work anymore. If you're even even as an employer, like uh, throughout the book, you talk about subcontracting. You talk about uh, the way that even um, uh, places like universities subca- subcontract out for for these um, service jobs. And so it may it may say IUPUI food service on on their uniform, but they're not working for the university. Right, and that, as we mentioned, some of the challenges of of organizing um, a union in the 21st century have to do with the the constant outsourcing of of jobs, and that the uh, the folks, and I know it's true on on the IU Bloomington campus as well as on our campus, that that a lot of people doing uh, a lot of important jobs um, are not actually university employees, and uh, it's certainly true at a major Indianapolis. Um, or you know, someplace like Cummins or someplace like um, Eli Lilly, for the most part, their food service uh, is provided by people who are work for a contractor, not for the company. Uh, their their maintenance is provided. The the, the uh, custodian work is provided by people, um, oftentimes who are working for a contractor and not the company. And it gives the company, the big company, a little layer of deniability, saying, well. Boy, it's too bad they're only being paid sub-poverty wages and uh, maybe being disrespected by their uh, manager. But what are we going to do about it? They don't work for us. And, and that, that level of deniability has, has made it harder for workplaces to be organized, and I think it's made it harder for workers to receive uh, justice and, and dignity at their workplace sometimes. Well, let's talk a little bit about how, how one does go about organizing that kind of community. Um, a couple of the, well, I guess one of, a primary person in the book that you speak about or you talk about quite a bit is a, a guy named Mike Biscar. Can you tell us a little bit about him? I did intend the book to be uh, focusing on the the low-wage workers of our community, the people who, who literally are in, in my neighborhood and, and where I live and in my workplace. Uh, but it turned out that the, the another theme of the book was to to chronicle the experiences of the organizers, the union organizers. Uh, they turned out to be a very interesting bunch. Most of the workers uh, who are uh, like Ms. Smith, working in a home care, working in food service, working as security officers, uh, they are, for the most part in Indianapolis, have grown up here. Uh, for the most part, they don't have a whole lot of uh, education. There's exceptions to that, but a whole lot of education beyond secondary uh, education. Um, uh, a significant percentage are people of color. Uh, the union organizers, as is true, I, th- I think, nationally, are, are, are a little bit different demographically. They are, are 
they are young. Uh, they're oftentimes recent college graduates. They sometimes come from uh, families of, uh, if not privilege, at least middle class and upper middle class backgrounds. Uh, Mike Biscar and several other of the uh, uh, organizers profiled in the book, not all, there, there are some are, are from our community and, and some came from working class backgrounds in our community, but a lot of them come from other places, aren't from Indiana, come and have to have to make a lot of adjustments. They have to adjust to a different uh, community, a, di- a different geographic community, a, a different uh, economic community. And these are very idealistic and admirable people um, who have a very challenging job, and, and watching them deal with that challenge was, was an important part of the book. And Mike was one of them. Mike was the chief organizer uh, for Unite Here, which is a hospitality workers union here in Indianapolis, which was trying to organize hotel workers and uh, struggled and uh, so far not been able to do that in Indianapolis. We have one of the largest cities in the country with, without a unionized uh, hotel workforce uh, in any hotel here, uh, but uh, have had a lot of success in organizing uh, food service workers out at our airport and in uh, universities here, including IUPUI and Marion University and Butler University. So uh, Mike has an interesting personal background. He's from California, went to Georgetown, and and got dropped into Indiana to be an organizer and never uh, even visited the state, much less uh, even visited the Midwest, much less lived here, and uh, had to try to um, help build a a labor movement that would be led by workers like Ms. Smith, who are from our community and uh, um, at first glance wouldn't have a lot of common. So that watching that dynamic for a few years in a front row seat that I had uh, was very interesting and and, and uh, really impressive to see how the organizers and the workers um, found their common cause and found their common ground and, and, and achieved some success. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Tonight's show is an edited repeat from 2015 about the labor movement in the service sector. Fran Quigley is our guest. He's a clinical professor of law at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law and author of If We Can Win Here, The New Front Lines of the Labor Movement. Shalanda Smith, home care worker and member of SEIU Healthcare, also joins us throughout. It's an interesting um, mix of trying to understand uh, how the 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 idea of unions seems to sort of call up different things in people's mind and in the public pers- uh, in the public understanding. And I'd I'd like to talk to Frank Quigley about the ways in which maybe we we're always just living in a sort of political propaganda when it comes to unions. Well, I, I think that's clearly true, and, and uh, unfortunately for working people, that the the propaganda, uh, the anti-union propaganda, has been enormously impactful and successful. Uh, and and there's no better evidence than talking to some of the workers that uh, are now uh, involved in the union movement as, as service sector workers. A lot of them started off being very suspicious of unions and even uh, overtly anti-union. They thought of unions as being the crutch for lazy people and that their paychecks would be taken for no good reason and uh, the idea of um, unions as being corrupt um, and and being ineffective had been uh, 
frankly, effectively communicated to them. And so it's a, it's a wonderful story to, to find some of them literally turning 180 degrees in their perspective on on the importance of collective bargaining and of, of coming together and the power of, of uh, solidarity uh, in the workplace. But they had to get there uh, because of the... Uh, the anti-union sentiment that, frankly, is very strong in Indiana. It's part of the reason that the the book is called If We Can Win Here, because that's the underlying theme, is that this is a difficult place to win uh, for unions. We've uh, had the right-to-work law pass here. We were the first state in the Rust Belt, uh, the former manufacturing belt of, of the country, to pass the right-to-work law that, that essentially is designed to uh, defund unions by allowing workers to not pay union dues even when they benefit from union bargaining and, and advocacy. Um, this past legislative session, uh, our Indiana General Assembly passed a, a repeal of the common construction wage. At the same time, we have record income inequality. Our, our General Assembly passed a law that would actually is going to exacerbate that and, and make it so that uh, people working on public construction projects uh, uh, can be paid even even lower wages. So uh, the the challenges is definitely there. Uh, I I like to think that the um, the the voices of people like uh, Shalonda Smith and and others uh, being raised at this program and in my book and and in uh, hopefully uh, media coverage uh, can can start changing some of that. But it's a it's, it's a tough spot for to be an advocate for unions right now. Well, what's going on here in Indiana that that that's the case? Is it um, uh, you know is it um, something that that happens uh, over time in terms of the way the labor force changes, or is it entirely a political issue? The state is um, primarily a, a, a Republican state or a red state. Uh, are those are those the basic issues? There, are, most of us here work for a living. Right, so I don't know who's who should be anti-union. Uh, is that just the fear of losing your job that you don't think a union does anything for you, won't protect you, will actually hurt you? Yeah, I, I think that uh, you think you're right on both counts. I think some of it is is a change in our economy, and that we did uh, 20, 30 years ago have many, many more people in our own communities who were working at union jobs and were getting paid uh, good wages and able to support their families on uh, at union jobs, but. Uh, uh, manufacturing work um, being uh, removed from our communities has has left us with a significantly lower percentage of of people around us who are working in unions, and therefore a lot of folks don't know someone working in a union, uh, and they don't they don't they don't know the benefits the way prior generations did, and and it again it's been a success story for um, the 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 forces for profit and for greed and for. Um, maximum profit, uh, profit making, and income at the highest level. We have it's, it's no coincidence that we have record levels of income inequality that we haven't seen since before the Great Depression in our communities, and we have record low levels of union membership. Uh, unions help uh, raise wages. That's been proven after generation after generation after generation, and in sector after sector after sector, including the service sector. Um, but uh, we make it hard. We make it hard with our laws, and we make it hard with our, our political rhetoric. And uh, um, that is, again, is a triumph of the Chamber of Commerce over the uh, working person who is uh, trying to put food on the table, working 50 hours a week uh, in the service sector. Smell of the bakery from across the street Got in my nose yeah.
It's time for our final break. This is Cleaning Windows by Van Morrison off a of beautiful vision from 1982. When we return, Indiana and the minimum wage. Stay with us on Interchange on WFHB. I went home and listened to Jimmy Rogers in my lunch break. Bought five woodbine at the shop on the corner and went straight back to work. At the shop and broke the tea. That's it. I collected from the lady and I cleaned the fan light inside out. I was blowing saxophone on the weekend in a down joint. What's Number 36. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. For our final segment of At Your Service, Organizing in the Service Economy, Fran Quigley considers the way Indiana has failed to protect its workers and then turns to new ways of organizing labor in our fractured work environments. I heard lead brilliant blind lemon on the street where I was born. Well, it does seem to be also a cruel irony that the home place of uh, or uh, Eugene V. Debs, Terre Haute, uh, is also the home place of James Bob Jr., uh, one of the, I guess, uh, uh, architects or agents of uh, Citizens United and uh, a person that has worked hard to uh, to sort of remove campaign finance laws and remove uh, ways in which um, we can uh, get some of that power back. I think one of the issues that's interesting is the, you know, the sort of um, press or media response to Citizens United or the way it's spun is that, you know, anyone, this removes all limits on spending so that unions can spend as much as they want to. But, you know, the argument there is, of course, as you said, that unions are, are diminishing in size and diminishing in, in strength. And in some sense, that's that's the idea. This is one of those ways in which we walk into a, a, a an unfair fight. Right, right. And I, I was surprised in researching the book, and again, I've lived all my life in Indiana, but I did not realize how, I certainly understood well and, and appreciated the history of Eugene V. Debs and, and, and uh, our legacy um, there, but I didn't realize that a lot of our major uh, unions were at one time headquartered in Indianapolis. Our, our Crossroads of America designation was literally true in those days, and uh, there were um, a lot of the iconic labor leaders of the past, uh, John L. Lewis, Samuel Gompers, etc., used to work out of downtown Indianapolis. Um, we've come a, 
uh, a long way since then in our state, and, and, and certainly not for the better for people like Ms. Smith, that's for sure. Well, uh, another thing that you know always strikes me is the way that these things uh, turn uh, turn into opposites in some sense. I think you mentioned a, a thing called uh, Yellow Dog. Was that the Yellow Dog Law or something like that, which Indiana actually didn't allow to be used here? You had to not be a union member to get a particular job or to get jobs in the state, I think is what it was. But the, the yep. state itself uh, wouldn't allow it at the time. So, But uh, it's, it's kind of the reverse here of the, the right-to-work law that the state uh, was so happy to go for and, and, and to harm the labor in, in the state. Right. And, and, and again, Indiana is a, is an un, has an unfortunate distinction in, in just sheer workplace um, protections um, on, on the most basic level, in that the minimum wage of $7.25 an hour uh, for most workers and two thirteen an hour for tipped workers has been considered by now by the majority of states to be too low, and the majority of states have increased their state minimum wage um, above those levels. Um, and that includes um, our surrounding states of Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, and then just recently this summer, the governor of Kentucky issued an executive order that uh, every uh, worker under uh, under his purview would get paid uh, higher than minimum wage as well. I think up to ten ten dollars or more. Indiana hasn't, and uh, we're we're a low wage island in in the Midwest now. Um, we have a a, a political. Um, uh, the political power structure right now is absolutely uh, contrary, acting in contrary to the interests of, of the working poor uh, on a variety of levels, and, and one of them is just sheer wages, and that uh, the same jobs uh, that Ms. Smith and others get would do in, in Ohio, or Illinois, Michigan, and probably Kentucky um, are going to get paid better than they get paid in Indiana, and uh, that's something that our lawmakers have uh, protected uh, the right to pay poverty wages um, to adults doing important jobs in our community. And and it's a shame, and, and I hope uh, that it will change. We have an organization called Raise the Wage Indiana. Um, people can like us on Facebook and check it check it out, and I think it's raisethewageinorg is our, is our website. Uh, and that organization is a statewide uh, multi- group organization, including a strong presence in Bloomington, uh, trying to raise the minimum wage both in our communities, which Bloomington has done in part with a living wage ordinance, but also statewide and nationally, because uh, it's, it, is a, it is an absolute shame uh, for those families and for our communities, as Ms. Smith said, if people are working hard at important jobs and, and they can't support themselves and can't put food on the table and keep a roof over their heads. And, and that can be changed. It's been changed historically. Uh, it's been changed in other communities in just the last few years, and, and Indiana needs to do that too. Well, it was also interesting that the state passed laws in which uh, municipalities cannot pass minimum wage laws that, that exceed state levels either. Yeah, that is uh, the essence of hypocrisy, uh, because these, these, uh, these laws that reduce that eliminate the the ability of local communities to respond to the economic needs of their of their citizens of their residents and their communities um, is being done by lawmakers who say that they're about conservative small government local uh, empowerment and in fact when the local communities might um, actually make sure that the uh, living wages are paid uh, they have uh, engaged in like you say what's called preemption where they uh, at the state level they have taken that power away so the city of Bloomington the city of Indianapolis the city of South Bend can pass um, living wage ordinances to say that their local government workers and and 
uh, employees of contractors for their local government need to be paid a certain wage, but they are not allowed under Indiana law to pass a, uh, a living wage ordinance to say that everyone in the community should be paid a fair wage. And that's, um, that's unjust in terms of, of what it, uh, the impact directly on the workers in the community, but also it, it's politically and ideologically hypocritical for folks who say they're about small and limited government to actually um, take away that power from local governments and, and, and keep it to themselves at the state house. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Tonight's show is an edited repeat from 2015 about the labor movement in the service sector. Fran Quigley is our guest. He's a clinical professor of law at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law and author of If We Can Win Here, The New Front Lines of the Labor Movement. Shalanda Smith, home care worker and member of SEIU Healthcare, also joins us throughout. Uh, Fran, real quick, can you tell us a little bit about alt labor organizing? I thought that was interesting because it, it uh, you mentioned it, it sort of gets around particular uh, national labor uh, laws by by not actually being a union, but also but being organized. As we mentioned, it, it is such a challenge in some workplaces, including a workplace like Ms. Smith as, as a home care worker, to organize a union, and certainly in, in places where folks are working in temporary jobs and short terms. And so um, the alt-labor movement, again, is kind of an unofficial term, but it, it refers to the efforts to um, raise the minimum wage uh, in communities across the country and at the national level. It refers to the the creation of, of worker centers, and usually that's the name that they're called, and we have a new one here in Indianapolis that, that advocates um, in some of the same ways a union does for workers who are low wage uh, but are not members of a union. And oftentimes these are uh, union funded, and really I think that's very much to the credit uh, of national unions. Unions are, are sometimes perceived as, as as being uh, selfish and just concerned with their particular workers and their particular workplaces. But these are unions um, that are funding things like the Fight for 15 for um, fast food workers, retail workers, home care workers, child care workers to to get paid uh, a living wage. In knowing that in the short term, it's going to be unlikely that they'll actually form a union and there will in the short term, it's unlikely there's going to be dues flowing back to the organizations that are helping fund this activism. And I think that alt-labor activism, I think, has been very effective in that it has started to drive the conversation about the need to raise the minimum wage, about the need to uh, value workers, about the fact that so many huge corporations have poverty wage business models that mean they don't pay their workers enough to live on, and those workers turn around and have to rely on public assistance paid for um, by taxpayers because these people working for a living aren't making a living, so they have to rely on food stamps and, and government subsidies that the that the rest of the community has to pay for, while those same corporations take in record profits and pay their CEOs enormous salaries. So uh, I think the all-labor movement is has been very effective in driving the conversation uh, around the country, and now we have something like 100 and 
50 different communities that now have living wage ordinances that have raised their wages uh, above and sometimes substantially above the federal minimum wage for all the people in those communities. So we we wonderful that we could do that in Indiana. And then we can do some of that in Indiana cities. Uh, we can't do enough of it, but we can do some of it. And, and that's what Raise the Wage Indiana is working on as a pretty good example of an alt-labor type effort. The idea of the fight for 15 is uh, characterized as a living wage. $15 is a living wage. And, and you mentioned that Indianapolis, it's actually more like $18 per hour for a family of two. Right. Uh, there, there's a great organization called the Indiana Institute for Working Families, which uh, does uh, uh, prov- does a lot of data analysis, and they have something called a self-sufficiency calculator. And for the different counties in Indiana, you can go to their website and look and see you know, what what it is what is a living wage for a family of two or three, what it costs for housing, what it costs for food, what it costs for transportation in that community, and and again. We know 725 doesn't do it, and unfortunately 10 or 11 or 12 usually doesn't do it either. So usually for a family of any particular size, it's, it's got to be up into the mid-teens. And, and again, these are not folks wanting to get rich or are able to get rich on that, but they're also able to maybe not get evicted and maybe not, act, not have to go into bankruptcy when they have health care costs. I'm a hard, hard worker every day. I'm a hard, hard worker. I'm working every day. I'm a hard, hard worker and I'm saving all my pay. If I ever get some money put away, I'm gonna take it all out and celebrate. I'm a hard, hard worker every day. Well, I woke up early this morning. That's our show. We'll close with Hard Worker by the Avet Brothers off of the 2004 release, Mignonette. Thanks to Fran Quigley, author of If We Can Win Here, The New Front Lines of the Labor Movement. Thanks also to Shalonda Smith, home care worker and SEIU healthcare member. And a reminder that this show sets the stage for two future shows that will dig a little deeper into the current state of the economy, labor organizing, and automation. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. The Jazz Menagerie is next on your community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Load in, load out, get down, get out, drive home, too late. My mind stays crooked and my back stays straight. I'm a hard, hard worker.